produced by Podcast Architects. Welcome back to The Path Forward. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Rick Fernandez, and we talk about education, innovation, and blurring the lines between the two. Today, I have with me Mr. Sean Matlock, the Director of Capital Programs for Prince George County Public Schools in Maryland. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, I've got to jump in and ask you, what was your experience in school uh, when you were younger? Like, I want to know how you got to Prince George County. Talk, talk a little bit about your career path, your experience, and how that led you to where you are now. Well, uh, so I'm from a small town in, uh, in, in southern New Jersey, Wildwood, New Jersey. Went to a, a school that my mother went to. Uh, she, everybody, I went to elementary school, middle school, and high school in the same building. That same building still in use today. Actually. Really? Yeah, it is. Um, how many kids? How many kids total? Uh, I guess around seven hundred or so now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it was a small place, and I left there to go to college. I went to to Dickinson College out in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and um, one of the oldest schools in the country. And then um, went to law school. Um, and I, I was a commercial attorney for most of my career. Um, and how I got into schools was Baltimore City, um, I read that Baltimore City uh, wanted to do a 21st century program. They wanted to uh, get $2 billion from the state to improve um, their capital their capital inventory. Uh, and um, they had an opening in their senior transactions attorney's uh, position, and it was right to help with that program. I was, I wanted to do something that was other than just making people money, which is what I did most of my career. And um, so I, I applied for the position, I got it. Um, and I, I, I was given the opportunity to basically um, help direct that, from the school's point of view, that uh, the implementation of that program, the creation and implementation of that program. It was a, a, a deal that we did with MSA, um, Maryland Stadium Authority, the IAC and other state entities. Um, and we ended up uh, not getting $2 billion, but getting a, about a billion dollars for the Baltimore City. And uh, there was a lot of um, work related to like bond issues and tax issues and other transactional issues, including uh, setting up the types of contracts we wanted to use for that. And so that's how I got into school construction. And once I got done with that, um, you know, school, being a a lawyer for a school system can be kind of boring generally. (laughs) And so the work was done really for that. We, they ended up building 20, uh, I think 26 schools and they had to close a, a bunch of schools, but um, they replaced a lot of schools and they did, you know, it was a good program generally. And then, so I, when I, 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 I decided I was going to go to Prince George's County, they had an opening there in their legal department. And I figured, well, I, you know, I'll go down there and see how it works down there. They, they had Fridays off. So it was kind of a, an interesting. Spoken like a true educator right there. there. There you go. Right. They had Fridays off. And I said, well, let me try this down here. Uh, you know, uh, and so I went down there and before I left my boss in, in Baltimore city, she told me, she said, Oh, you know, they have a capital job. You'd be perfect for down there. And I said, well, that's not the job I applied for. Uh, I'll see what happens when I get down there. So I got down there and it was just as boring as it was in Baltimore city. And so my daughter was getting ready to start college. I was thinking I was going to go back to the private sector and go back to doing what I, what I'd done before. And my boss in Prince George's County said, well, you know, the capital job is open and you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, would I? <laughs> All right. And I, I already knew that uh, Prince George's County had a ton of problems before I went down there. I already knew that. Um, and people in the industry, I'm a construction, you know, I have a lot of friends in construction law and. I was on the construction law committee and all stuff like that for the bar. And I, I kind of knew they had problems. Right. So when I got down there, um, I saw those problems firsthand. So I knew kind of what I was getting into, but I really didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, comparatively, Baltimore City has 85 campuses. Prince George's County has 206 campuses. And that's I mean, there's true. roughly, there's close to 140,000 students in Prince George's uh, yeah, County. Yeah, it is. It's 135 plus, yeah. So it's very close to that. And 
uh, got down there and I was like, oh, okay, this is this is going to be interesting. So uh, I did apply for the job, for the capital job, got it, obviously. And then um, they they told me we had done a study. It was um, called the, um, uh, God, it was, uh, well, it's not really important. There was a study that they had done and they determined that they had a need of $8.5 billion. Wow. They'd gone 20 years at one point without building a school. So I read, I actually read that it has the second oldest campuses, collection of campuses in the state of Maryland that Prince yes, George County. True. And that was part of the issue and part of the driver. Well, it, yeah. And you understand there's a lot of history to it. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into all that history. No, no, no. That, I mean, yeah, I get it. Yeah. You know, people are very, very much attached to their school buildings. Oh, and no. History. No, it's, it's deeper than that. So okay. I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but I'm I'll, interested I'll, now. You, you got me on the hook now, so I want to know a little so, bit. Yeah, I'll bounce into it briefly. So you have to understand what happened was Maryland is still a southern state, whether people like to admit it or not. <laughs> and during Brown, once Brown v. Board of Education was passed, there was a lot of resistance to integration in Prince George's County specifically. Um, and um, so what they did was rather than allow natural mergers to happen, you know, based on population sizes and growth and communities and stuff, they built schools so that white students would remain in white neighborhoods and black students would remain in black neighborhoods. They built about a hundred schools in this and uh, right around that time frame. They didn't do a great job building those schools. Um, they weren't designed, they were just designed to keep the schools segregated. And so what happened is the portfolio ballooned dramatically because you built all these schools in these neighborhoods to keep the kids in these neighborhoods rather than having natural mergers happen that would happen with when when populations would grow. Right. And so what happened is you have a school system that has a um, a, po a portfolio of about 200, 200. At one time, it was like 210 schools in the 80s. It, it and it, well, it was more than that. In the 80s, it sort of contracted. Um, they sold off a lot of properties. Um, and then, um, unfortunately, population growth grew again. And now we have a lot of overcrowding. But what happened, though, is if you look at the portfolio and you look at it from a, a geographical standpoint and where the populations are and where the schools are, you overbuilt um, because of this segregation thing. And, and, and there's, a, there's a book out of actually about why it all happened. And so um, you actually maybe have about maybe 50 schools more than you kind of really needed to, but now they've all aged. And then what happened was when they realized that the county was going to be integrated and when they realized that the county, that, the, that this black wave was coming, the school, the county depopulated from a, a lot of white people, it was a lot of white flight out, okay. of, the, out of the county. And um, and they decided they passed a moratorium where you couldn't build any more schools around that time. So they put they halted the construction of schools for roughly 20 years. It took a federal court action to force the, the, the school system to start rebuilding schools again. Wow. So. And then there was a tax um, thing that kept the, the tax base kind of low, which meant that there wasn't a whole lot of money around even if they were going to build to build schools. So you went, so what aged the, the portfolio was one, we overbuilt in a period of time during to, to prohibit integration. Then they put a moratorium on construction, which just aged the whole school system and then nothing was being replaced. So that's where, why we ended up having a portfolio of schools that was basically really, really old. Um, and had not been updated. And they were doing, they built a few schools, but mostly it was repairs that they did. And so um, by the time I got in here, we had this very old inventory, a very large inventory uh, that's not really right-sized or geographically set up properly. And then you, we find out that uh, I'm told, oh, Sean, by the way, we have $8.5 billion need for construction. So I'm new, right? I said, great, you're gonna give me $425 million a year? And they said, nope. <laughs> so, and I looked at my average uh, pork, um, uh, this is kind of why we ended up doing the, the P3. Yes. Is um, 
we ended up looking at um, how old, how much money we're getting. And so we averaged between 120 and $160 million annually, which is a very healthy budget. But when you're talking about about 40% of that was going to systemic replacements in order to keep the buildings going mm -hmm. and, um, and other projects like that, um, there really wasn't a lot of money available for school construction. We had a few projects in, in, in process when I arrived. There was a high school and an elementary school that was in process. Uh, actually, two elementary schools. One was a regional program. So they, those were ongoing. But for the bulk, um, what they ended up doing is they divided the, the schools based on a, an assessment that they had done privately. And they divided them into four, uh, basically, um, what we call uh, cycles. Cycle one, cycle two, cycle three. And then cycle four was sort of a catch-all cycle, right? Where we kind of threw schools that we didn't sure what we we're going to do with and schools that we knew we weren't going to get to for a while, right? So cycle one, two, and three was a 20-year plan, basically. Okay, okay. So we and, um, you... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Now, so as you're, as you're kind of taking in all of this information, right, um, when did you start heavily looking into public-private partnership? Is it, is it something that you had previous experience with, or how did you actually land on that as you're evaluating, all right, what do we do with, with all of the needs and all the variables? Well, the first thing that I was trying to do was just try to figure out, well, how am I going to bridge this gap on this right. funding gap? Um, there are, and the other thing was um, we had, when, when we were looking at our management of our portfolio, uh, the other thing that was clear was that we didn't have really good preventative maintenance. Um, so when you, when you, if you look at our FCI number, I mean, you could have a lot of schools and still have a decent FCI number which is the facilities condition index, but we had, so good is somewhere around one to nine on the facilities index. Our average is over 60. Oh, wow. Okay. So we're all in the critical range as far as infrastructure's condition. Um, and right now we're doing, actually, I'm in the middle of doing a, um, uh, structural assessment of schools because we were starting to see a lot of structural failures. So that's another thing that we're doing right now. But what we ended up doing was I said, okay, I only have maybe $160 million annually. But what I noticed is that there was a chunk of money that was going to systemic replacements that, and we had a decent stream of revenue. Um, and I thought, well, is there a way to leverage our revenue into some sort of program? I, I looked at some of the energy, um, contracts where sure. people take energy savings, but that really didn't work for us last time we tried it. And because there was an attempt to do that. And I started to look at different ways in which we could bridge the gap. And I saw a project um, down in, in Texas. Well, first I saw the Can Canadian projects. And um, I said, well, that's interesting what Canada did, you know, because they, they built a bunch of schools using these, this, this methodology, I saw that they did some in Europe, mostly in, I think, Great Britain. And then uh, I saw that Australia did something like that. And I said, well, has anybody tried to do that here in the United States? So truth to be told, the only place that had anything even close to that was down in Houston, Texas. They had a, a bond failure. They didn't get a bond for two high schools that they'd already designed and pretty much contracted out, they thought they were going to get it and they didn't pass the bond. So they ended up doing a lease lease back. Basically they, they leased the land and had the developer build the building who then leased the, the school back to them with a buyout at the end of like, I think it was like 20 years. And I looked at how much it costs to do that, the square footage cost and how much it costs for them to do it annually. And I said, Oh, we could afford that. We could afford that with our stream of revenue. So then, um, I did, I talked to everybody that had anything to do with P3. I called all these different companies. I called the development teams. I called um, all these trade organizations. And I, I got as many people to tell me about what the market would bear. And so I got an idea of what it is that we thought we would need to do. What the, and we knew we needed to bundle at least five schools um, that we thought to make this work and make it cost effective and enticing for the marketplace. Um, the other thing that I then looked at was why they, why didn't anybody else do this? Right. 
And so it's a little scary. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's what we're asking ourselves all around the country right now. And, and one of the prime reasons I wanted to speak to you is because why isn't this a viable option for other districts? And to, to hear your lessons learned and, and kind of how you got there. I mean, that's that's truly something that we're going to have to get very creative on because like where, where you're sitting, I'm in, I'm in Houston, Texas. I mean, in Texas's funding uh, for schools is antiquated. It, it's just we've got to start looking for alternative delivery methods uh, unless we change something at the legislative level. So, yeah, so I'm very lucky. Yeah, I, I'm lucky because uh, in Maryland we have, you know, I have annual budget, a regular budget for my county and, and I get money from the state. So um, we don't have to go out. I don't have to go out for a bond initiative every time I want to do some, some structure, which is what you're facing in Texas and other places around the country. It's very, it depends on the jurisdiction. Two things made what we, two things were important in this jurisdiction. Uh, Senator Rosa Pep, who's from our, who's a, one of our, our, um, our, our state senators, um, introduced a bill that got passed that allowed, um, that created the opportunity, the legislative opportunity for school systems to do alternative construction financing methodologies, lease leasebacks, P3s, those types of things, right? So he, there was legislation in, in, in place that allowed us to do it, and it gave us a structure by which to follow in order to get the funding. So that's number one. Some states have this type of legislation in place for public entities. Some places don't. Most states don't. There are about, I think, about 10 or 12 states that do, okay? So that's number one. You have to have the legislation because this is a unique funding methodology and it's not something, it's something you do need to have some sort of framework for. Um, the second thing, most of it that you see for P3 funding is for transportation, um, but not a lot for social infrastructure. And they, so that while they have legislation for transportation, um, they don't really have something for uh, social infrastructure. Second thing was, I looked around the other jurisdictions that tried to do it. There are multiple jurisdictions that tried to do it before we did. The thing that made it difficult or that killed those deals was not the money. It wasn't the deal structure. It wasn't the lack of bidders. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was all politics. Really? All of it. So what all of the components were there because that's what we're obviously it's a continuing fact-finding mission right like what is going to get us to the finish line it's interesting that you say out of all of the stuff that you need to make this happen the politics are, are what shoots it down right so there's a cottage industry of people out there um they they came for us too to be honest with you and no matter what kind of deal it is they don't care about any of the metrics they don't care about any of the finances they're just anti-p3 they're anti private industry, they're anti everything. They're just the most negative people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and what happened was um, I watched, uh, it would be like one or two board members from different jurisdictions that would, and they would start to promote, uh, they would get this in their ear. They would lose one or two votes at a, a board meeting or a vote at the county council or, or something like that, or, or city council. And next thing you know, the deal died. And, and that's all that happened. They would get a lot of negative publicity and the deal would die. So for me, the instruction was, well, I need to get my political ducks lined up before I try to do anything, right? right? So what I ended up doing was that our county council has, the way our legislation works is the county council has to initiate, initiate the, the, pro, the, the legislation. So they had an annual retreat and I got in, I usually get invited to speak. So uh, it was funny because I, I was talking to um, the then their administrative person, and he said, uh, "So you're coming to ask for more money?" I said, "No, I'm coming to ask for less." He said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, I'm, I've got a plan." So um, the way we figured we needed to address our portfolio needs was three threefold. We couldn't replace every school, so there had to be a renovation component. There was a, we still need to do traditional funding because all the schools that we wanted to build would not fit within the P3 model, the way we were looking at it. And we wanted to do the P3 to get bundled projects moving to, you know, to multiply that, right? So I took this proposal to the county council's retreat uh, and I immediately got nervous because people were starting to take pictures of the proposal. And I was like, 
Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, what did I just do? So, but, but they really were receptive to it. And um, they passed legislation to create, to allow us to do a P3, um, local legislation. And what it did was, but one of the things that it did, and because before, after the retreat, I did a lot of um, uh, retail politicking. Um, I, I, I put together a work, we put together a work group that included members from the Board of Education, members from the county's administrative staff, because I talked to them too before I even did that as well. Um, so I had the county executives department, they were ready for this and they were, they were, they were favorably looking at it. Um, the, uh, county council, uh, representatives, I talked to them, they were favorably looking at it. And so we put together a work group that had both their administrative staffs and elected officials on the work group. And they provided the political cover along with our super, our, our CEO, Dr. Golson, who was very, gave us a lot of political cover for this. Um, so they acted as the political cover to keep people from attacking it. We didn't, after we initially uh, got it approved to move forward, we didn't make any publicity about it. I mean, we stayed very quiet. Um, and while everything was up and up, you know, you could get to stuff. We had a lot of public events, but we didn't make a big deal about what we were doing. It was just part of it. We did, we did an industry day. We brought, I think we had about 300 industry representatives come to our, our, to our industry day. Uh, we had all the politicians to reassure them that there was political support for what we were doing. And then we just moved into the, to the transaction. As you're, as you're going through this process and kind of circling the wagons, giving information, educating some of your, your constituents, what are the, the two biggest things that people struggle to wrap their mind around or, or, or instantaneously? All right, that's a, that's a barrier. I know I'm going to be facing this because this is going to be a barrier to getting this done. Is there anything that stood out to you like this is a reoccurring barrier? Yeah. I mean, first, the first thing is that people are very nervous about the private sector. They think that the, the private sector is taking over the schools, which is not the case. Um, in our situation, we're doing what's called a design, build, finance, maintain. So they're the, the private sector is going to design the schools. They're going to build them. They're going to pay for the financing of that construction. And then they're going to pay for the, they're going to maintain the buildings. Once the buildings are delivered, then we do what's called an availability payment, which is we're paying them for the availability of that building. We own the building, but they keep it operationally available to us. And, and that's kind of what you, what it's the availability payment is. And so, but that covers the cost of the construction and the maintenance cost and sort of cost the finance fee. It's a lot more, it looks more expensive on paper than regular construction because it is. But to give you an example, um, or to, to break it down this way, there is a, a deferred maintenance cost. So if I'm going to build a school, it takes me, we takes us a long time to build a school in our county. There are a lot of reasons for that. One of it is trying to get sites um, to build on. Site conditions are poor down here. Uh, and we have a, we're heavily regulated. Um, we have um, DPI, which is the Department of um, Permits um, and Enforcement, right? You've got um, uh, Mar uh, Maryland Capital, uh, Maryland National Capital Pro uh, Parks and Planning, uh, MNCPPC. They are a, a state entity that, that deals with us. They cover us in Montgomery County. So other counties don't have to deal with them, but we do. Um, we have WSSC, which is the, the water water people. Um, we have, um, we're also regulated by the IEC and uh, MSDE, um, MDE, it, the, the list goes on, right? And so we have a ton of regulation um, in our county. So it makes it, one try and then because of the way we're structured in the county we don't actually go directly to some of these uh, approving entities they force us to use third-party permitting organizations to do the initial left and then they approve it which means it goes through basically it goes through the approval process and then it goes through the approval process so it's a very um, lengthy process of getting a school plus getting the the, the studies done um, you know, your, your feasibility studies, getting all that approved, getting an architect on board, all those types of things. It makes it, it's a very lengthy process. And 
And then there's the dearth of funding. So to give you an example, if I were to try to build the schools that I have built, that we're building under the first P3, it would have taken us at least 10 to 12 years to build those schools, maybe longer, um, if we'd done it traditional way, because we wouldn't have had the funding in place because you would have to have all the funding in place to do it, not just a portion of it. And um, the permit, and we would have to cascade it from a permitting standpoint, manpower. And then while they're waiting those for those schools, you're paying for the deferred maintenance on all those buildings because you have to keep them running. And then, um, and then, so the way we did it, we got three benefits beyond just the speed of construction. Number one, we we're going to get like we get thirty years worth of maintenance, which is important when you're trying to use new systems and you don't. And your schools have traditionally been um, new systems have never been maintained very well. So we actually get the expertise on the maintaining those systems the way we want. Second thing is that because there's a turnover requirement, a life, um, a, uh, a life cycle uh, turnover requirement, at the end of the, the, uh, of, the, of the 30 years, those schools have to have a 20 year useful life. That means that those systems like the roof, HVAC systems, windows, things like that, they all have to be upgraded before turnover. So that's roughly about 25% of the cost of the building. So we get that built into the contract. So we won't be getting buildings that are in bad shape. Plus we get them to upgrade all those systems at least once before they turn the building over to us. That's a massive savings. So if you think about it for the money that I would be annually spending, maybe like $15 million uh, from my budget, um, that would have been going to maybe one systemic project uh, annually for the next 30 years. I get six schools um, with new systems that I don't have to replace. And then when they do have to be replaced within that 20 year period, they're going to be replaced by the developer. So that's another 12, that's another 12, reno six renovations that I got knocked out. So basically for the cost of 30 years worth of systemics at a, at a static number of $15 million, roughly 15, $18 million. I basically was able to get six schools and six renovation projects, um, over that 30 year period, wow. which is a, which from a cost standpoint is a cost benefit. We're actually going to save not, not we're, in a way we're saving money over time. Plus I'm not paying for deferred maintenance on that period of time as well. And so there, there, there were all those types of benefits that came with it. How, so let me ask you this, because obviously you're in a school system and there's churn, right? People come, people leave. And even in the, in the political climate where people are getting newly elected, how does the churn affect you? Like for your team or, or continuing with the project, does that, does that impact it at all? Yes and no. So in the infinite wisdom of our leadership, we decided, they decided, um, a lot, that we should have a P3 office. So um, alongside capital, the capital programs department, we have now a P3 office that's headed by Jason Washington. Um, and Jason, he used to be with Corvius and then he was uh, with MPP3. And so he's got a, a good background uh, in the area and also background in the county uh, with doing uh, this type of work. I mean, Prince George's County has done one other P3 and that was their stormwater P3 with Corvius. So they, they weren't unfamiliar with how P3s work. So he came on board um, and he, he put together a small team and they're basically oversight and implementation, right? So, and he's also working, uh, we're all working on the second tranche of P3s, but his primary response, those are his primary responsibilities, the, you know, ex execution of first P3 and then the, um, and, and the procurement and the execution of the second P3. Uh, one of the problems is the marketplace right now, it's difficult to hire people. So he's, his big issue is getting the staff up. We have the people that we have in place where I don't think it's going to be a big issue at churn. We do uh, outside contract for some services and, um, and we usually put together right now we have um, with our advisor pool, we have not only a financial advisor, but also a technical advisor. And so that technical advisor helps out. We have 
on, on all those things. So we have a technical advisor on the first P3. They're focused on implementation. And then the second advisory team group we have, they'll be advising us on the second tranche all the way through construction. So um, you've built up a team and a base that's going to endure is what you're saying. Yeah, right. But it's hard to hire. I mean, um, finding people with this kind of background uh, in this market is difficult because it's such a competitive construction hiring market. Um, You know, uh, it's just hard to hire people. Everybody's fighting. Yeah, everybody's fighting for that that talent and the know-how and the understanding of who's done this and where have you done it, you know? Exactly. So. And so, you know, from my my perspective, it's no more difficult for, for regular construction than it is for P3 construction to get, you know, a qualified staff. Um, but it, it, there's not a lot of churn, actually. People really kind of like, once they get on these things, they, it, it becomes mission-driven, you know? I mean, for us, it's all about building adequate schools good educational environments for um, our, our students and, and getting them into the thing, uh, getting them into these buildings. And the other advantage that we have now is because of the way we're doing construction, um, we can get consolidation uh, of some schools. We can merge um, populations that should have been merged a long time ago into schools. And you're not asking them to leave one bad school to go to another bad school. We're asking them to leave their bad building to go to a much, you know, a brighter place, a better building. And it's a little bit more enticing for them to do that. Was there any point in the process where you were like, it was a rough day and you're like, what did I get myself into? This thing may be doomed for failure. I'm trying something, you know, brand, I'm paving a way right here. And uh, man, this is just a daunting task. Do you have any moments or have, you like, I, have, yeah. <laughs> I, I can think of, I can think of at least three moments. You got to give first, me those. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. So the first was when the, we did this during the pan, as the pandemic was wrapping <laughs> up. So it, there was a day uh, when we were talking to our financial advisors and we realized that the, that the tax-free market was more expensive than the, uh, tax refinancing was more expensive than regular funding. And we we're like, what happened? The market's just flipped upside down. And so we sort of slowed down. We said, okay, let's pump our brakes a little bit because these markets need to, to right size if we're going to, because we're asking for a hard, a hard bid on, on the availability payment. And we needed the markets to, to, to get themselves in order before, um, you know, we asked people to make these financial commitments because they just didn't make, Nothing made sense financially, and and basically, a, a a public-private partnership arrangement is a financing deal more than it is a construction deal. It is a development arrangement, obviously, but it's really about the financing and also from the standpoint of the developer, and it's also about the financing from our standpoint because we're doing this um, to to basically flat, you know, sort of manage our our spending in a way that benefits us the most, right? And um, this is a budget management tool for us uh, more than anything else. It does, it has a lot of benefits, but its biggest benefit is it makes the, the, the cost of construction of large scale bundle construction affordable, right? Um, from, and it's not that we're not gonna spend money, it's not free, but it's, it makes it more affordable in that you can manage the budget better. Right, um, you can plan and know what you're spending money on. The second thing that happened uh, was uh, when 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 the, uh, the, the this cottage industry came for us. Um, the deal was getting close to. We pretty much got everything down. We don't really come to the point where we're, we were we finalized on our our selection. Um, and we were negotiating the, the information to get the close, and we had to get board the various approvals of the final deal. And people were holding town halls, um, you know, and there were all kinds of articles and meetings, and people were just just hitting us with like tons of negative inf- information. They were lying about aspects of the project. Um, they were they were just they were seeding the the press with all kinds of bad information. It was just absolutely unbelievable um, the level of um, vitriol that was p- directed at 
my department, at me, um, uh, about something that I thought was overwhelmingly positive. Um, and so that was a bit depressing about that. I think that was the hard, the hard thing. Um, and, uh, but we, we got through it. Uh, we tried to give people good information. Um, and we got through those votes and, uh, got the deal approved, finalized. So, and then I guess, uh, the, the other time when I was a little nervous about it was at the very beginning. So we had done a value for money proposition. We really wanted to do eight schools. We ended up doing six. Um, and we got into the meetings and they were saying, well, we know what your availability payment, kind of what your area looks like, what you think you can spend. And we can't do eight schools for that. And like only one group said they could do eight schools. And everybody else said, no, I don't think we can make moving to seven. You know, it was all like, oh, gee willikers. So um, we had to um, decide make a real hard decision on what was going to get cut and what wasn't going to get cut, and then have to have a real explanation of why we made those decisions. And that was hard. Um, that was a very hard thing to do because there was so much need um, out there. And I, it, you had to really kind of triage the whole thing. And that was kind of hard to do. That was a, a tough day for me. But other than that, um, um, you know, we had good advisors. Um, we've had, um, uh, you know, uh, a lot of tough decisions to make, but, and, and it's hard because the, this is a, a field that is, is, is seated with tons of people who know what they're doing and can do the job. I don't think we've ever come up to the point where our decision was, was, can we think that one of these developers can't do it? The issue has always been who's going to do it the best for us. Who's going to give us the best value plus the best um, right. quality of the performance, right. quality yeah. performance. Why do you think that your district's the, really the only true P3 that's, and to, to my knowledge, that's happened and it's not been replicated in other places that would make sense for it? Is there, is there a couple of things? Is it just what you described, kind of those three instances is it's just magnified and people are just hesitant to, to take that plunge? I mean, give me your thoughts on why this isn't Every, off. So the one is that not everybody has a framework to do it. And I think a lot of the jurisdictions are now looking at different frameworks from a legislative standpoint. That's number one. Number two, uh, again, the politics and this, this cottage industry of, of P3 haters um, that are out there um, makes it difficult because what you're, you got to understand, school construction is different than other construction. Every penny that the school system gets that doesn't go into education is either considered to be a waste of money or, and everybody thinks they know how a school should operate. Everybody went to school, so they know everything about school. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and there are a lot of people who are very negative when it comes to the private sector and what, and what the private sector, they all think that the private sector is out to, to do them in. And I think what people don't get is the private sector builds our buildings anyway. They, you know, I can, I, even the stuff that I build traditionally, I'm going to a private builder to do it, right? So the private sector is always going to be building your schools. The question is how they're building it. And one of the things that people, I don't really think they understand is the economies of scale that you can do when you're doing bundle projects. A lot of the you know, a lot of this is, well, we don't want the big developers to come in and do this. Well, let me just say this. We have one of the biggest developers doing our current deal, but we've gone, we've exceeded. So we're, we're going to exceed our 30% minority business participation requirement. We got 20% local um, businesses, county-based businesses that, that, that are been in times of the deal. We've got unions have been uh, on the deal. Um, we, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of money that's been pumped into, um, our county, uh, or Prince George's County as a result of this, um, before we spent a penny. So as of today, I've spent no money paying the developer yet, uh, and my schools will be delivered right now. Uh, five of them will be delivered this summer, uh, ready for opening this coming fall. So, and I've spent no money so far, right? 
and um, because it's been privately financed. And when I start spending money, it's not going to hammer my budget because I'm only going to be parceling out a portion, a small portion of my budget on an annual basis that I can graph out all the way to the end. Um, so um, there's so many benefits that we're getting from it and the economic development that we're getting is great. And what's happening is we, and we, we sought this out. We're showing, we're growing capacity for our local businesses. So we have one of, one of our uh, local um, construction companies, Warren Brothers, they are, um, they, they, they put, they did the steel an initial part of it. So that was like a $65 million spend right off the bat with them. Um, and, and it's growing their bonding capacity. It's growing with all of our local, a lot of our local people are getting involved. A lot of our small minority businesses are involved. And now because we were successful in the first one, the state is supporting a second one, which they're going to contribute roughly $750 million to our availability payment pool that allows us to do these, this next tranche of schools. And so that's money we weren't going to get. So that $8.5 billion gap, we just got an extra 750 to close that gap uh, of our spending. And um, in addition to all that, on our second tranche, we've asked that there be 20% minority equity. So we're going to get a, a minority equity partner involved in this. And we're going to get a local equity. We're asking to set up outside a 10% local um, equity pool so that members of the community can invest in, uh, in this and get the benefit of it. So there's a lot of things that we're doing that are creating not only the opportunity for people to participate, but also growing a lot of um, uh, capacity for the business, local businesses because of so many projects going at one time. Give me the so give me the one lesson learned as a as a former superintendent. I always try to think about all right. If something went great, what's my lesson learned? If something didn't go so great, all right, what do I learn from this and take forward? What's your one lesson learned from this experience? That if you're that you need a team, it, you need a team to make it work. Um, it, it cannot just be the school system. The political elites um, in the community have got to buy in in order for something like this to happen. Um, so you need to go out and educate people. You need to go out and communicate to people. You need to expose them to the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. And you need to be transparent with them so they know what, what the transaction is going to look like. That's a great point. I think that's something that we leave out of when you're thinking of the financing and the construction timelines, all this stuff. Oh. And, you, and you don't think about, all right, who has to be you know, so, on our side before we do this. To give you an idea why this matters. So our, our both our, our CEO, Dr. Dr. Monica Golson and our county executive, Ms. Um, uh, also Brooks, um, they were very, very involved in a lot of uh, what was going on to the point that uh, with the, as I pointed out, we have regulatory issues. Well, they, um, they arranged for all the regulatory organizations to create a, like a work group. And that work group then met with the private developer every other week so that nothing would sit on anybody's desk for a couple of weeks so that we could get the cascading permits that allow us that. to site work and then do the fine grading work but, and then do steel correction. And so the, per, the permits were, were issued in a way that allowed the projects to move forward in it quickly. And that required some political contribution, uh, you know, political will to move forward and make this sort of thing happen. Um, and, and, and so that all that, that working with the county council, um, keeping the, the county executive's office informed, having members of their, both the county council's administrative team and the county executive's administrative team working with the school board and, and, our, and our administration, those things together made it possible. It requires a degree of coordination. And if, if you want to do something like this, you really need to go and say to your, your and I, I spoke to, uh, I went down and talked to our state delegates and the people at the state house and stuff and let them know what we were doing so that we could get their support behind what we were doing as well. And so that's going to result now 
Um, and so we had, uh, we're gonna, looks like we're gonna, we're gonna, we're moving through our cycle one much faster than we other could have done. So otherwise could have done. So if you think about it, um, not all the buildings in cycle one are being rebuilt. Some of them are being consolidated into schools, right? So I, we should finish cycle one um, before almost on time, which is ridiculous since we didn't have enough money to do it, right? So I'm, I'm looking at what we needed to make, make cycle one happen. I knew I was getting a third of the money to do that, but because we're doing it this way, I'm making that third of the money stretch farther. And so I'm gonna get 12 schools um, that I otherwise wouldn't have gotten, but I'm not spending 12 schools worth of money right now. I'm spreading it out over time like a mortgage. That's awesome. I mean, that, congrats, first of all, congratulations to you and the district and most importantly to the kids that get to enjoy the new facilities because that's just such a huge lift when kids go into a, a nice new building that is properly set up for their education. I mean, that's that's what it's all about. Um, it, it's it's amazing. That It's amazing hearing what's possible just with a little bit of, of outside the box thinking and making sure that uh, all of the pieces of the puzzle are there in place. I mean, I commend you guys for being able to pull that off. And as I've said, there's a lot of folks out there tr trying to figure out, all right, what do we do? Because the way we've always done it is no longer working. Now, if you're looking right now at a lot of these urban jurisdictions and the cost of construction and the needs that we have, it, it there is no way to upgrade these portfolios doing the traditional construct financing methodologies that were used you know where you come in and you you get a budget and you go out and you bid low bid which is never low bid <laughs> and, um and then uh and then you get a project and you try to get it to where you want to you know you move it forward it's just there's too much need and there's too much decay um and i want to say this the reason like I said, the reason why I'm in this is because I really do want to build good schools for kids. And I don't want to build cardboard boxes either. Let me, let me just say that there are a lot of people who are going to, that will say, we could build 20 schools for the cost of what you're building 10 schools. And that might be true. But the question is, how long will those schools last? What's the cost of ownership on those buildings? What's the cost of, uh, you know, are they designed to be schools or are they just buildings that you built. I mean, there are so many things that we're trying to consider now. There's a lot of evidence that shows that the issues with acoustics, um, task lighting, um, day lighting, uh, air quality, all those things actually have direct impacts on student performance and, uh, and on kids being in school. Air quality affects how many kids like asthma and things like that and days missed and, and all those sorts of things. We have to account for those in these buildings and we have to build buildings that are sufficient to support educational efficacy. And that's what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to build, um, you know, uh, uh, and I'm not trying to convert a warehouse into a school. That's not going to work. But what we are trying to do is we're trying to turn build good schools that promote educational efficacy and will, in the end, uh, result in better educational outcomes for our students. And that's that's part of it. That's, that's a big, big part of it. Absolutely. And that's what we should all be focusing on is how do we do the best that we possibly can to ensure that kids are learning when they step in the building. Right. That's absolutely true. I do want to end on, on, on a little bit of a lighter note. So you're a lawyer, right? Can I give you my best lawyer joke? Yes, you can. I love them. Okay. How was copper wire invented? Okay, how was it invented? Two lawyers were fighting over a penny. <laughs> All right, you got to give me one. I know you got some good ones. Okay, my my favorite lawyer joke of all time is uh, there was uh, people that were they were on a boat, a lifeboat. There was a ship, uh, uh, a ship sank. And so the, the first mate says, I'm going to swim to shore because he could see shore. I'm going to swim to shore and, uh, and save us all. And so he jumped in the water. He starts swimming to shore and the shark started eating him and he didn't make it. So another guy says, well, I'm a world-class swimmer and I've dealt with sharks before. I think I can do it. Uh, I'm going to jump. And he jumps in the water. He tries to swim shore. Sharks eat him. And so there's a lawyer in a boat and he says, I'm going to save us all. Don't worry. I can make it happen. 
He jumps in the water. The sharks form a V formation and escort him to shore. And they said, why they do that? He said, professional courtesy. <laughs> That's pretty good. I love that one. Well, Sean, I want to thank you. I didn't want to take up too much of your time today, but I'm just thoroughly interested in a lot of the, the P3 landscape is, is new learning for me and a lot of others as well. So I appreciate it. And I do, if there's a chance that I can come up and visit once y'all get to some little bit of breathing room, I'd love to come up and see the schools and maybe maybe catch up um, maybe during cycle three or phase two and, and, and just talk well, some more about the progress. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd love for you to come up and take a look at the schools. Um, right now, uh, like I said, uh, they're all capped. Um, they're all roofed. We're doing interiors now. Um, they'll be ready by June. So it's January. So in five months, they'll, they'll uh, five of the schools will be ready in June. So, you know, I, I'm probably going to be down, down in, uh, maybe in Texas in March. Uh, maybe we can get you up in May before they're completely done. But uh, they're moving pell-mell, and, and uh, uh, the, we're all getting excited right now. Um, my big argument right now is uh, uh, all the equipment and materials that the teachers are arguing that they want me to pay for <laughs> <laughs> in the buildings. But uh, we're, we're trying to get all that worked out. But, yeah, we're, we're moving towards, uh, you know, for, um, you know, having five of those schools open in the fall and one of them open uh, in the winter. Um, and so we're very, 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 very excited. In addition to that, you know, we have, we just built a, a school that was built 60% offsite um, that we just put, we just opened this fall. And um, we are, uh, and I've got two other middle schools and a high school going at the same time. So we're, wow. we're doing a lot of construction. I love it. I love it. And if you if you happen to be down in Dallas for for the AI AI conference, um, maybe you can jump on again and just catch us catch up. We should be down there uh, doing a couple of episodes just because I'm I'm fascinated and I I want to understand a little bit more as we move forward and and give my Texas folks some options. Right, that's what it's about too. It's like share share the best practices and the lessons learned. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Your super the Houston superintendent was at the facilities uh, uh, conference just not too long ago. And she was talking about how there's, it's been like, what, 10 years since you've gotten a bond or, or longer uh, for, for construction. That's, 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 that's way too long. The landscape has definitely changed. Texas was usually, uh, if you were going to put a bond forth, uh, pretty good chance it was going to pass and we could ramp up construction. That landscape has changed as, as politics change, as money changes, it's changed a lot. So I've got school districts that are missing bonds multiple times, you know, within a, a span of two to three years. And yet we still have kids coming and we're still growing. So uh, it's much needed. Your information and your your uh, lens on this is could be very helpful to a lot of a lot of people, a lot of educators. So uh, that's a, why we're here to why help. I, lo I love it. And thank you again, sir. And I'll be seeing you soon. All right. Thank you. Produced by Podcast Architects.